Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Really excited for tonight's show for a couple reasons. One, we're showing part two of John DeLynn interviewing me. Part two and part three are my favorite interviews ever done, and I really look forward to uh, seeing them. I can't really remember what's in there, so we're going to play those in just a minute, that in just a minute, and it's going to go for about uh, a little over an hour. But right now, I want to uh, introduce my good friend, my brother in the, in the faith, Danny Larson. Welcome. Thank you, Sean. Danny has uh, taken, undertaken, he's had a call on his life to uh, step out into ministry. And when this guy steps out in the ministry, he does it right. Tell us about what you're doing. Well, um, I had uh, an impression that, well, an impression I mean by <laughs> the fact that there are people that still want to know about the Mormon history and about uh, their walk in Mormonism and whether it's biblical, whether it's Christian. And I know that in your show, you've sort of uh, veered away from that topic right now for the time being. I felt like there was a gap there that needed to be filled in. And um, I, I've answered your, your ministry call, their phone, while during the week when you're not on air. I talked to a lot of people that have a need for understanding how do I converse and uh, discuss uh, these topics of spiritual understanding and religion with these missionaries that are coming to my house. I also have uh, Mormons who want to understand Christianity more. And so I decided to create these episodes. Uh, they're animated, so they're fun to watch, short, to the point, very well uh, researched and documented. I, want, I, I believe in accuracy is very extremely important. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do is produce one a week. and. Uh, I do all the writing, and Seth does all the animation. We mesh it together, and we have we cover a different topic normally every every Tuesday. A new one is released. Uh, tell me, how many do you have in the can now? We started in January, so we've got approximately 20, About 21. 20 in the can. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to, Danny does not know I'm going to do this, but uh, how do people watch and contact you? Uh, they can go on our website, which is talkingtomormons.com. That's talking T O. Mormons.com. Uh, they can go on. We're on YouTube, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Yeah. What Danny doesn't know is he self-funded this thing. You know, uh, people don't know ministry is expensive. It, it's an endless drain. It's just money. That's all. That's because everything you're trying to do has some kind of bill attached to it. And so uh, consider supporting them because he's self-funded this from his retirement. He's a retired guy, but the quality of the writing mixed with the fun animation, and it's just so good. In fact, uh, let's take a look at one. Sure. All right. Just a month before Smith's death in 1844, he continued to lie to his people. Listen to this. He said, What a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can only find one. I am the same man and as innocent as I was 14 years ago, and I can prove them all perjurers. We have to remember that he wasn't perfect. He was just a man like us with weaknesses. Smith sent his apostle Orson Hyde on a mission to the Holy Land, requiring him to leave his wife Miranda at home. While Orson was away, Smith secretly married Miranda. How would you feel if your best friend married your girlfriend while you were on your mission? I wouldn't like that. Joseph Smith wrote in the Articles of Faith, we believe in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Through the entire time Smith and other Mormon leaders practiced polygamy, it was strictly against the law.
Okay, I found here in the Book of Mormon, in Jacob 2, where God permitted polygamy if he wants to, quote, raise up seed. Some Mormons argue that the reason polygamy was okay was that there was a lack of men in the early days of the Utah Territory and that the women and children needed to be taken care of. Right. However. However? Statistics prove that during the polygamy era in Utah, there were more men than women, making polygamy completely unnecessary. It's interesting that society condemns modern-day polygamous prophets like Warren Jeffs, who was convicted of having sex with underage girls. But Jeffs was only following the example of Joseph Smith, who he revered as the prophet of the Restoration. In fact, if Smith were alive today, he'd be sitting in prison with Jeffs. Ouch! Polygamy can't be defended scripturally or morally. The LDS Church has a dilemma. It can't officially renounce polygamy as a doctrine. That would cut at the very heart of Mormonism and its temple practices, and it would expose Joseph Smith as a serial adulterer. In the future, polygamy may very well become legal in the United States. When this happens, what will be the church's position? Will plural marriage become common Mormon practice again? If not, why not? Don't forget to check out the description below to learn more. Thanks for watching Talking to Mormons. Really good job. I mean, just so, you and Seth, uh, you work on the animation. You write the scripts yourself. Right. You're a great researcher. When I met you years ago, you were very scholarly in your approach to the faith. Um, I appreciate the, the uh, dedication you uh, have toward the facts. And uh, you have filled a gap in, in, in what you're doing online. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, other people out there in um, social media who are uh, also producing uh, sermons and uh, presentations, podcasts, things that you're doing, uh, you know, that John's doing, uh, other ministries that I really glean from a lot. I'm real careful about the truth being taught. And What are they? What do you call uh, MRM.org is really Bill McKeever um, and Eric Johnson doing a, a really great job. Okay. Uh, there's others. I, Sandra's? Sandra's, UTLM. Mm -hmm. uh, I go there. And there's, there's many websites that people just start Googling it. You know, that's why people find us is because they want information on Mormons. Yeah. You know, initially I titled my, my script, uh, website uh, Christian conversations with Mormon missionaries, but I decided to narrow it down just to talking to Mormons. Mm -hmm. And so I get, I, I got a missionary from back east call me, he's on his mission right now. Mm -hmm. He was he was actually on the email with me trying to get me to answer questions that he had. And so I know that people even in the mission field, mm -hmm. particularly missionaries, are interested in this type of yeah. exchange. Yeah, younger, younger people too. There's a lot, yes, and that's the crowd that I'd really like to reach are the younger group. We, we find through our analytics, we can see where people are viewing us from and the age groups and that sort of thing. We would like to even get younger if we can. Well, that's smart. Uh, I really commend you. You do such a great job. And listen, if you can't support them financially, you can support them in two other ways, uh, and that is pray for them. Yes. And, uh, and then share these, forward these to everybody you know. Uh, even if they're not LDS, forward them out. They are full of amazing information and really uh, nail it. But before we go, I have to ask you one more thing. Okay. I'm having a little trouble with the polygamy thing uh, with Joseph Smith. I understand as a man 
when I saw when I saw this recent clip that you showed, what might drive him to do it? Because that Miranda was hot. She was. Wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> what? What is going through the mind of these people? I asked the same question. <laughs> a little makeover would maybe go along. Joseph. I think Joseph was better looking than most of the women that he married. <laughs> exactly. I hope I don't get in trouble for that, but it's... <laughs> Talking to Mormons, you guys. Danny, thanks, brother. Thanks. And now to John DeLynn. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part two of my Mormon Stories podcast interview with Sean McCraney. I'm John DeLynn. It's really exciting to have you with us today. It's May 15th, 2018. We just spent the first hour with Sean talking about uh, his original interview with us on Mormon Stories podcast eight or so years ago. We talked about uh, quickly his life story of how he became born again Mormon, how he started his ministries here in Utah, how that rose and rose and rose to the point of making half a mill a year. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> Nice coin. The ministry. Yeah, the ministry made up to half a million dollars a year. Um, he had this really successful TV program for eight years. And then finally, how that all came tumbling down uh, when he started to challenge uh, the, the local Utah uh, evangelical and other Christian churches. And then how he uh, re recreated a ministry uh, again with Aletheia and campus um, church. He built uh, an online streaming uh, ministry and actually built a physical church, which is where we're meeting right now, called Campus Church. So that was our first episode. If you haven't checked that out, please go back and listen to it. It was good stuff. Sean's an engaging and an interesting and a sincere speaker. We talked about then why he didn't start a mega church, and I'm going to push back on that. But now we're going to go into a few things. We're going to talk about Sean's beliefs now what his ministry is about now. And we're going to talk about some of his criticisms of some of these churches that I kind of thought had some cool things about them. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Um, and I'm going to try and convince Sean to become Utah's Joel Osteen and start his own mega church here, but just do it the right way. That's my goal. By the end of this hour, we're going to have Sean convinced to start a megachurch that he's been doing it all wrong. Um, by the way, mm. you've got some tats on your arm. Show us, yeah. show us your tats. I'll tat it up. And tell us what, that, what that's about. Uh, this was my first tat. Got it 50 years of age. Show the camera. And I, and okay. I tell people uh, that, well, there's my camera. Okay. I tell people, it's so when I flip you off, you'll know I'm a Christian. <laughs> uh, that's a joke, sort of. Um, this is a Christian anarchy tat. Uh, because uh, I am a Christian anarchist, probably one of the only ones in the world, so I have no following in that. Uh, this is just about God, no big deal. This is not the equal sign. This is the, uh, it just represents death to the flesh, life to the spirit. And this one right here is too long to explain, but it's an X, and I'm very big on Xs. And there's a scar in the middle of that there's one. There's a scar that came before the X. The X was built around the scar, yes. So, and then I have the Star of David here. And those are my tats, Star of David. You're yes. tatted up, man. I'm tatted up, yeah. Tattooed Christian. Yes. Sean, the tatted Christian. The tatted uh, future mega church Joel Osteen Christian. <laughs> All right, we're going to get there. We're getting there. You, you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Are you ready for this? Bring it. All right. Okay, so I'm going to just go through. I'm sure we did this in my last episode, but we're going to do an inventory of your beliefs 
what I understand evangelical Christianity to be about, and we're going to have you tell us where you are now. Okay. Maybe it'll be identical. For those who are real geeks, go back and compare his beliefs eight years ago to now and let us know how they've changed. Mm, All right? Excellent. Okay, so God. What is God to you, Sean McCraney? God is everything. He's one. He is uh, he, she, it, whatever. I don't know. Like you said, unknowable. Um, but I think to know him, the best of our ability, and his son is life eternal. I think that uh, God manifests himself in his son. I think God manifests himself in the Holy Spirit. I think uh, there is one God. There are not three parts of him. There are not three separate gods that make one. I don't think he's a man. I think he's spirit. I think he's love. I think he's light. I think he's all good. 100%, thousand, billion percent good. And so did God, was God once a man? How did God come to being? No idea. Not once a man. It says God is never, not, God is not a man. God is spirit. You worship him in spirit and in truth, but not a man. I don't know origins. I just believe in faith. I, I, I believe in faith. I trust in faith that he uh, has always been self-existent, uncreated, eternal. How that is, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. So not some big bearded dude in the sky. I, no, no bearded dude, no. And is it just is it just the universe energy behind the universe? Is that what well, it is? Defi- is it definitely the he, creation power. C- c- he's the power. He is life. He is light. I, I don't know. I just use the words. The way I know God is by what the words that are used to describe Him, and they are light, love. There are there, God is is only used like six, seven times in the entire Bible, and God is love. He is light. Um, that's all I can say. Do you ever use female pronouns when you're talking about God, or do you prefer male pronouns and why? I use male pronouns when I talk about God simply because of habit, but I think the Holy Spirit in the Greek is feminine, and so I think the Spirit of God is feminine. When we think of being born again, that's God giving birth to us new life, so I think that is the feminine element of God. So I think there, it's, God is not gen, He doesn't have a gender. So... He encompasses all genders. So, yeah, I just say he because it's convenient. All right. Yeah. So I'm going to challenge you to throw a, a feminine pronoun in there every once in a while. Well, I do when I speak of the up. Holy Spirit. You but do? I don't care about being politically correct. So I reject your challenge wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you care about being politically correct? It doesn't matter to me. It's being I, sensitive to, it, to minorities. I'm not sensitive. And... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm insensitive. <laughs> you, are you proud of that? I know. I'm not proud of it. It's what I am. Oh. I... I, I I'm sensitive to people's pain, but if someone's being pained over something that I don't think they need to be pained about, I don't care about that. But wouldn't, doesn't Christ give you the power to change and to be better? He does. I don't think using God in the feminine is better. <laughs> so no? I'm not doing it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Does God have other creations, like other worlds with humans on them? No idea. No you don't idea. Know. Could. No, no reason why I couldn't. May not, don't know why we would be a universal central to the universe. Absolutely could, absolutely could not. No idea. Okay. Don't care. Is, do you feel like you worship the same God that, that Muslims and, and, you know, Hindus worship? Yeah. Just with different? Yeah. So it's kind of, you have a universalistic? It's not universalistic, but what it is, is I think that I grasp through the dark to find God. They grasp through the dark to find God. 
And when we reach the true elements of God, we're reaching the truth. If we're not reaching truth about him, it's just our failure to understand him rightly. And I think that ultimately we will get to that. Seekers in Islam, seekers in Christianity, seekers in Hinduism will find God if they're seeking God. Yeah. How old is the earth? Oh, no idea, but I'm not a new earther. I reject the uh, worldwide flood. I reject the creation in six literal days. I don't buy into any of that stuff. I don't think evolution is anathema to the Christian faith. I have no problem with anything that has to do with the uh, biological record or any of that. I just trust that the record that we have in the Bible, it tells us of God's dealing with the part that means most to me. That's human beings that God is working with to reconcile to himself. So no 6,000 year earth. No, no, no. Okay, what, so evolution, are you okay with organic sure. evolution as it applies to mankind? Uh, well, I mean, I don't, I don't make it a hill to die on, John. That's the thing. If someone believes that, fine. I don't teach it otherwise. I just teach what the word says and the people choose how they want to see it. If someone says, well, I think we evolved from apes. Well, how about it? You have that right. I love you. You know, I don't know all the answers, so I just... So, literal Adam and Eve as the first humans? I do believe in literal Adam and Eve. If there were humans before them, or subhumanoids before them, or apes before them, possible. No idea. I just know the record I look at is the Adam and Eve story, and I, and I trust in that. So you don't, need, uh, you don't need Adam and Eve to be the first humans? No, I don't need, I don't need anything. Because the scientific record shows people 20,000 years ago... Yeah or more yeah. with wall you know writings and with right. artifacts and yeah. the bible's chronology kind of right. doesn't add up to 20,000 years ago right. right we're talking about a garden that was created for adam and eve outside of that maybe there was all kinds of people going so on. a literal garden of eden for you oh yeah yeah absolutely believe that because okay. it's so interwoven into everything else i believe it gives us a a type and a template for everything else that extends from it and is woven through the narrative to revelation the garden story of God speaking to Adam and Eve is important to me. Yeah. And could Adam and Eve have been born by mothers and fathers or were they created poof by God? You don't know. No poof. Uh, this record says that Adam was red and he was taken out of the clay and actually out of the dust of the earth and God breathed into that body and he became a living suke, mind, will and emotion. I believe that story and from him came Eve from his side. So, so literally I, God did a surgery, took a rib out and made Eve? However he did it, I don't know if it was a surgery or what, but somehow we have from the one coming to, and that was the model Mos Moses used for marriage. Could all of that been metaphor? Sure. The rib coming out of the side sure. and Adam from the clay? Sure. I so don't know. They could have been born by other humans. Could anything could have been? Okay, you're not rejecting that. I don't reject anything like that. You just are like, this is the text we have, and yeah. I'm going with. And I teach it this way. And if you not, see it differently, you may be right. And you're not trying to project back or no. make scientific explanations. No, no, no. I kind of like that. Yeah. I don't know that I've heard that a lot. No, you don't. Okay, so um, how much can the Bible just be taken as metaphor? Depends on the as person. As symbolism for you. For me, uh, well. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the mind of man understands the things of man. You're a man, you have a mind, you understand Microsoft, you understand computers, you're talking with Seth about all this stuff, you get it because you're a man. The scripture says that the, the, to understand the things of God, you have to have the spirit of God. And so I believe that those who have the spirit of God are given a channel or frequency, to use the words, to understand things about him because they're seeking to understand that and have that in their life. 
So my interpretation of things is for me and other people will disagree and somewhere in between the truth lies. So I don't try to have any kind of answers or whatever. I, I, I think you have to understand spiritual things by the spirit. If the spirit isn't guiding you on spiritual things, you probably are going to have difficulty understanding them. Um, I don't totally understand that answer, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll drill a bit more. There's a lot of what people would call atrocities in the Old Testament. Yeah. Genocide, murdering of men, women, and children, and animals. Kind of, you know, uh, there's probably sexual abuse in there, pedophilia, like really awful yeah. stuff sometimes. Um, do you allow for the possibility that that wasn't God commanding some of those things? That it, it, the people thought that God was commanding them of those things, wrote those things down in the scripture as their own cultural, social understanding of what was going on. But in reality, you know, because a lot of people are like, Old Testament, I'm out of here. I, I can't buy into a God that's this violent. I have three responses for you. First response is in the New Testament, there's a passage that says, all scripture is inspired. Uh, unfortunately, that has been used by people who use the Bible as a club. And they say everything in the New Testament is literal and is God's word. Uh, and so it's inspired, so therefore. Uh, but unfortunately, they don't understand that the better Greek translation of that is anything that is scripture is inspired. So it's not that the whole thing is inspired. Obviously, we have text in there that is not from God. So I think very easily, Paul says, I'm not talking from God. This is me speaking. I think very easily people could have said, God is behind us. Let's go in and do this thing and let's destroy these people or let's cut this woman up and dis distribute her parts throughout all the land or rape this person. Or I think that is entirely possible. Uh, however, second story, um, who was it? Um, in um, Pablo Picasso did Guernica, beautiful crazy painting and, an, and a member of the Nazi party came to visit him in Paris in his studio and the member of the Nazi party said did you do this and Picasso's answer was profound he said you did this and so when I think of God and interrelating with human beings I say what was God's part in the human race and it was the Garden of Eden it was Adam and Eve it was good hey I've given you everything you want just ask me what you want and we'll do it we created an atmosphere in which we're going to have rape and we're going to have all these crazy things. And I think God is so good. He doesn't intervene and impose his will upon people. I think God is there to try to save us amidst our messes. And so he comes into Guernica and he's saying, I'm going to make them. And he doesn't, he does it with the mess at hand. So if there's slavery, he's working within slavery. If there's polygamy, he's working within polygamy. If there's things where they're doing things crazy, he, he does not stop free will. I am so opposed to um, uh, Calvinist determinism and a lack of free will in the faith. I believe he is all about free will, so much so that he lets us do what we want. And so my answer to the Old Testament stories is not that he's the author of it or behind it, but he's there to try to fix it as evidenced by what he did with the very first story in Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how I would say that. The third thing, I don't remember what it was. <laughs> okay. So how do you, so that's how you address the problem of, of suffering, uh, um, which, which a lot of people really get hung up on. Yeah. 
they, they would say to you, well, if God is the creator of all things, he created the earth, he created all these people, he could have devised a better plan Ooh. so there wasn't so much pain and suffering. Oh, I love that. Why did he? What? I love when there's a guy who was created who says he could have done a better. That just fascinates me <laughs> when men say that. He could have done better. In fact, I well, think he's all he's powerful. Like, like the, oh. the, the typical thing on God is he's all knowing, yeah. all powerful, okay. and omnipresent. Right. Right? Okay, so. God is, uh, he, before he creates anything, anything, he knows it's going to go south. We know that. It's going to go south. He doesn't want it, like the Mormons will teach. He just knows it's going to be. But he loves to create. He wants to create a, a being in his image, and he does, knowing the full fallout. But in his purview, he sees the whole parade going by, and he sees beginning to end, and his end result is I'm going to redeem every single one of them to myself. And so a period of suffering that they create for themselves that goes on here, which I know is going to happen, I'm going to let it happen because I'm going to work through it for the end result, which is the redemption of humankind through my son's shed blood. So we go around and we say, he could have done better. Well, let's say that he said, okay, I'm not going to let there be suffering. He would become despotic. He would become a jerk. He would become someone who says, I'm not going to let that evil happen. I'm going to come up with a better system. And we become automatons, and we become robots. We lose free will, and we just become puppeteers that God has created so everyone's happy. I don't think that's a good God. I think that's a despotic God. But he could have made us without a sinful nature. Why do we have to be created with a sinful nature if he's our creator? We weren't created with a sinful nature. We were created with an ability to choose. Adam and Eve didn't have a sinful nature. There was no sin in them but they chose their own will. That's the nature of human beings. It, because if we didn't have that nature to choose evil, we would not have a nature to choose good. We would be complete robots. So the, the nature in us to choose evil has to go hand in hand with our ability to do good. If we didn't have it, we couldn't do good. So it just seems very reasonable to me that he puts a tree in and says, listen, I've made this place, you have everything you want, multiply, replenish the earth, you don't know how to do it, talk to me, I'll tell you. But that tree over there, don't eat it. When you do, you're sure they're going to die. And when you die, everything's going to spiral down. They said, we're going to do what we want, which is what humans do. They do it. And then he's here to clean up the mess so much, he sent his own son to save us in it. So I'm just going to say, on the one hand, you're saying that's what humans do. Yes. On the other hand, you're saying he created us. So, so he created us to do evil. He created us with the capacity to do good or evil. If he created us with only the capacity to do good, we would be robots. So he, he created us with the capacity to choose to do one or the other. He didn't create us with the um, demand to do evil. He created us with the capacity to do evil. I see that being a very different uh, thing. And so I respect them as a God for giving us the choice to choose to have relationship with him or not to choose to want to seek him or not. And I think that is a great definition of a good God. You know, I, so I, that's how I see him. So when somebody is really confronted with child rape and <sighs> torture and murder or genocide or massive natural disasters or starvation of children, that's kind of when they go really sour and yeah. say, if God couldn't do better than this, I, I can't buy in. I'm, I'm out. And I would say God couldn't do better than that. Because if he's a good God, that's the best a good God could do. If he was a despotic God, then he would say, when your child was about to get hit by that car, woo, 
take them out of the way. And then, but then when you want to say a swear word because you hurt your hand in, in basketball, whoop, take that away. And then when it comes to worshiping me and doing good, do it, do it, you're a robot. So with the ability to live good lives and to have good things, there must be the ability to suffer if you're a good God. There has to be, or else there's no choice. There's no, there's no opposition, which the Mormons teach, you know? And I see that as necessary in the makeup of a good God. So did we exist as spirits or souls prior to our mortal existence as humans? Quoting scripture, Jesus said, I'm from above, you're from beneath. So no, uh, we, were, we existed when God created man out of clay. He breathed his breath, living breath, and he became a living soul. And from the unity of Adam and Eve, those spirits are continually reproduced through human beings. And that is where we came from, the dust. So That's why Jesus said you must be born again. So at some point, is there a spiritual creation of our souls before there's a physical temporal creation of our souls? No. In fact, Paul teaches the opposite. He says, first we are uh, material, carnal, and then we are spiritual. So we first were carnal creatures, and then we become spiritual. So the sperm inseminates the egg. Yeah. The baby starts forming. Yeah. Do you have any sense for when the spirit enters the... Fetus? Not big on abortion, not big on right to life. Don't, one way or another, people do it because they need to. I don't judge anyone who's done it. I don't know. The Jews said that at the minute a woman feels the movement, that's when life begins. The I don't know if that's true. Whatever. Quickening. You don't know. No idea. But you're basically, it's your view that the fetus is forming before the spirit enters it. Absolutely material first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So why the variation? If there's some people that have their heart towards God, and did God make them better? What, how do we account for variability in people's own conscience and in their decisions? Such good questions. These are great questions. And I, I've yearned for people to ask the questions. And from my perspective, reading the scripture, from my perspective, God has, by his foreknowledge, known everybody's propensities and choices and will. Beginning of the parade to the end. Adam and Eve till... But he created us. Right. He so how much of who we are is because God made John the guy that would do the Mormon Stories podcast. Okay. He created us with free will. He knew what our free will choices would be. He didn't create us. He didn't, he didn't predispose us to do and predetermine us to do what John is going to do. He just knew what John would do through his actions and choices over the course of the But there wasn't a John before he created the there John. There was no John. So... So when we have a genetic kind of explanation for me, okay. there are all these, you know, uh, chemicals, these chromosomes, these combinations of, you know, chemicals inside our body, the A to T, the T, the G, along all these traits. Right. And as we shuffle all those different traits, right. then as I'm forming, I've got a propensity towards eating too much or liking food or tacos sure. too much or liking sex too much or being greedy or, you know, blue eyes or tall or not, those can explain behavior, right? If you all add them those. all up. He knew all of them. He knew all of them. And he, he knew them from beginning to end. He's outside time and space. He sees the whole parade for, as one. He knows what it would be. It's all done. But if you have a tendency to, if you and I have a tendency to eat more than other yeah. people, didn't God make us that way? Yeah, you could say that. And that's what, let me get to the point that I was going to get to. 
He uses all those propensities. You can say he created us that way. I agree he creates us Jeffrey Dahmer, a this way. Okay. without a conscience. Okay, sure. God created Jeffrey Dahmer without a conscience. Yeah. True? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. He created all things. So he's like, I'm going to create this dude without a conscience, and then he's going to go kill and eat people. I think we created uh, Dahmer by the human race and our choices collectively since Adam and Eve decided to go against him. I think it's the Guernica example. I think God knew that uh, Dahmer would exist. I think God knew how to use Dahmer to the benefit of his end goal. But I don't think that God created Dahmer to kill and torture. I think God said, I know what Dahmer is going to do because of all his genetic propensities, et cetera, et cetera. I am going to allow, because I'm not going to stop things, I'm going to allow him, and I'm going to interweave the solution to what Dahmer's choices were to my final solution, which is the redemption of all. That's how I see it. Yeah. When you said that we were created in God's image, yeah. but God's not a man, right. what does that mean? Characteristics, I think. Ability to choose. Uh, personality. Personality traits. The ability to love. The ability to get angry. Jealousy. God's so God has all those yeah. negative, or I guess a psychologist wouldn't call those traits negative. No. No. Wouldn't call fear, sadness, or anger bad. No. But you're saying God gets angry. God gets sad. Jealous. God gets jealous. Scripture you says believe that. that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're created in his image. We have the same traits, but we also have the ability to reason. That's how we're different from the animal kingdom. The rest of the animal kingdom, I should say. I think we're animal, part of the animal kingdom. But we have that ability to reason. And he's given us that being made in his image. And so we get to choose. And we're not just driven purely by instinct. We do have an ability to choose. And he says, I love that because I want people who want to choose me, not people who are forced. So can God sin? Can God be a pervert if we have, are lustful? Can God be lustful? No. So where, where do you draw the line between what traits he can and can't have? How do you know? I think he has the, uh, I think he has the traits perhaps because he can get angry. Can he get over angry? No. But can he get angry? Yes. Can we get angry? Yes. Can we get over angry? Yes. Can he be jealous? Yes. Can he get over jealous to where it becomes an obsession and you kill a, a somebody? No, because so, he's good. We are not good. We are of the clay. We are, we are carnal. We are of the earth. And so we have take these propensities that he gave us, but we also intermingle them with a fallen state, an earthly state, a carnal state. And so what he's doing is he is saying, I want to redeem you from that. Here I am. So why can he be angry but not lustful? Uh, you know, maybe he was lustful in the man Jesus. Uh, maybe when he became flesh, Jesus experienced the things that men experience. And being that Jesus is God in the flesh, God with us, Jesus experienced lustful feelings. He was tempted in all things. He probably experienced what it meant to be a homosexual and a, and a pedophile. He probably experienced what it meant to go through all these types of feelings and lust that you have in the flesh. That's why God became flesh so that Jesus' flesh could experience and then die for what we did. And so we have God relating to us through his son. That was the whole picture. That was the Old Testament pointing to his arrival and the need for his son, the Messiah, to save the fallen world from what we had created. So in terms of God being lustful, I think yes. But did he act on his lust? No, he didn't. So I answer that in Jesus. Yeah. So... Some of my friends, or probably most of my listeners, will not love homosexuality and pedophilia being put next to each other. Okay, separate it. But I can say, I would, I would say any lustful 
because there's lust in homosexuality, there's lust in heterosexuality. There is, I'm just talking about lust. It doesn't mean to, uh, it, there's lust in pedophilia. I mean, there's lust in food. Lust really in scripture doesn't have anything to do exactly with sex. It's all of our Okay, you were traits. just talking about yeah. lust, human yeah. lust. Human lust, okay. human lust. Yeah, and I you're didn't... not putting those? No, 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 okay. no, 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 no. Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're created in God's image in terms of ability to choose and personality traits. Uh, what is our destiny after, you know, why did he create us and what happens? Do we continue existing after we die as conscious personalities? Taking what I have understood from the Bible, I'm going to do a really quick example of what I think happens. In the Old Testament, God carved out a nation for himself, the Jews. They had a temple. And in that temple, there was a surrounding circumference of which, how far it could go on a Sabbath day. And in that temple, around the temple, they had their tribes, okay? That outside the temple area that they made for themselves to live in, they put their trash, they put their uh, uh, animal sacrifices, people with leprosy, anything like that, they were outside the city gates. Jesus comes along. There's a temple. There's a city around a city wall. Jesus is sacrificed outside the city gates where the trash and refuse are as a common criminal. It's a type and picture. Okay. The New Testament speaks of a new Jerusalem. In that new Jerusalem, there is a temple. It's heavenly. It's a heavenly temple. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. There, are, there is a wall around it. Outside that wall are those who don't care about God. He, isn't, he is giving them what they want. They don't want to be in relationship with God. They don't want to inhabit the city. They want to be outside of it. He gives them that. That's the destiny for people who don't care about God. They have the right to. He's calling to them constantly. Their conscience, the nature sees God. They say, I really don't care. And they have that right, and he loves them. They're his creation. Inside the city gates are his people who cared about him. And then inside the, the temple and the Holy of Holies are those who were actually his sons and daughters, who live by love, not just by faith, but they actually live their love because God is love. That's how I see those pictures played out with what the future is for every single human and mankind. Is there a place of fire and, and misery and eternal punishment? Did you hear me describe that in that? No. So there's not. But that is the type I see in Scripture of what the future destiny is for every human being. Have you read C.S. Lewis? Yeah, some. Have Years you, ago. Have you read The Great Divorce? Uh, no, I don't think I, I... No. That's the basic premise of The Great Divorce oh. by C.S. Lewis. Basically, um, all who are in heaven choose it. Yeah. The people that don't go to heaven are just the ones that are kind of tooling around but aren't interested. Yeah, I would agree with him. Um, uh, okay, so so in your vision of it, what are they doing no if they're idea. tooling around not with God? Are they like, gardening? Like, no idea. No idea. And then what are they doing if they're in the wall? No idea. Like harps and singing? Couldn't tell you. Why? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Partying? Like, There's one thing it says. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, the glories that await them that love him. That's all it says. So That's you don't know awesome. what we do. No idea. So even the heart playing on the cloud is baloney. Okay? <laughs> All of the speculation of afterlife stuff is baloney, unless you buy into near-death experiences, which I'm kind of looking at now because they're interesting. But uh, I, scripturally, we get nothing at all. Is there a physical resurrection? I don't believe in a physical resurrection for us. I believe the resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. I don't believe, because of what the Bible says, 
of bodies coming out of graves. I think Jesus' body came out of the grave for a special reason. His witnesses needed to see him and touch him to show he overcame sin and death. First one. But the rest of us, I think it's spiritual. And so, John, just to jump ahead, my idea since Christ has been whoever has lived on this earth, when they die, they die, they're taken, they're judged, they're given a resurrected body, and they are, their, etern their eternity is determined then where they live in that heavenly kingdom. But it's not a physical body. Not a physical body. I don't know what that means. It's a spiritual body. That's taught in 1 Corinthians 15. But it's not a... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God is what it says. So no flesh is going to be in his presence. And it's not the form of a man. I don't think so. But it could be. I don't know that answer. doesn't okay. tell us. How If Jesus was God, which I heard you say earlier, yeah. made flesh... Yeah. Where did that go, that flesh go, when Jesus died? That's a good question. Um, when Jesus died, his body was laid in the, in the tomb. Then he rose with his body, told Mary, don't touch me. He then ascends to his father somehow. Then he appears in a room with a closed door. Obviously, he's in a body that can go through things, etc., etc. Finally, he ascends with his body into heaven. The question is, was that a spiritual body? Was that his physical body? Was it a mix? What happened to the physical? Does he keep it? Well, I believe he was in that until he returned in 70 AD, which we talked about, with wrath and reward for the nation of Israel for either receiving him or killing him. That was the end of the world, the end of the age, and all of it was wrapped up in the biblical sense. It's done materially. There's no more material application of the Bible to people since that time. So his purpose in having a body was to be seen as having resurrected, ascending to the Father, and then coming back with it. And those, Hebrews says, who were looking for him would see him. That is the whole picture for that model and type of him. What he's done with it since, will he have it when we die? No idea. No idea. So this Mormon teaching of an atonement where Jesus has to suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane and take upon him all the pain of all the sins as, as a sacrificial lamb uh, so that we can receive forgiveness. Yeah. Are you down with that description of the atonement? I'm not. I'm down with him coming and suffering for the sins of the world. But I think it was all... By suffering in the garden? No, on the cross. It was all Not the in the garden. Never in the garden. So the bleeding from every poor, suffering in the garden? As if it were from every poor, Luke only. And uh, in the garden, he had an angel come and help him to prepare him for what was about to happen. Uh, there was no angel coming to him when he got on that cross. Everybody who writes about him in the New Testament speaks of the cross, the cross, the cross. It's a metonym. Just like we speak of Washington being for our government. Uh, Washington won't let us won't lower our taxes. Well, the cross is a metonym for any Christian. It means everything was take, took place on that cross. The garden was a unique thing Joseph in, included to probably differentiate that the Mormon faith from standard Christianity being the restored gospel he probably wanted to restore everything and so every little aspect had some thing to tweak a little bit he added the garden in there but um, we've done shows on the garden and there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't hold water at all so on the cross is it just is the pain he's suffering just being nailed to a cross because that's gonna hurt yeah. or are you saying God like sent extra punishment down. It's like grrr, like a superhero movie. Like, grrr, okay, here's all the suffering of all the sins of all the people. Grrr, and Christ is receiving. God's like torturing himself and sending all that suffering down so that he can feel it. So that then somehow justice satisfies 
mercy or whatever. Really, that, really vivid description. I'm just that. asking how it works. <laughs> I'm just, I've seen a lot of Avengers okay. movies. All right. I've been watching Marvel lately. <laughs> like I'm just seeing yeah. like, the, you know, the, the equation of the a Marvel comic <laughs> with the Atonement of Christ. It's Sorry. A, all right. It's all right. That's, so listen. I'm just trying to make it work. Christians have errantly said God poured his wrath out upon his son. There's not a scripture in the, uh, in the New Testament that says that. How could God pour his wrath out upon a son who didn't do anything wrong? Plus it's himself. And that's kind of weird. He's, well, in your model, understand. he's torturing himself. In the flesh, in the flesh. Okay, I got to step back just so there's clarity. When we read of Jesus, it says that his, God's words were made flesh. That's what it says. John, right? Yeah. And that, and that word is his logos, which is his reason, his heart. His, it's more than just the words. So in the Old Testament, God, whatever he is, she is, I just fulfilled your wish. You're politically correct, Sean. What, I, I knew it. <laughs> Whatever she it is, when she spoke, things happened. God said, and it was. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So whatever God said, God had an ability, not with vocal cords, to speak. God's words are amazing, whatever they are, and his words became flesh and dwelt among us. Words express things. Jesus was expressing the invisible God when he walked on the earth. Okay, he was in flesh as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a human being. So he was biologically Joseph and Mary's. human being. Biologically, he was Mary's. Not Joseph's, he was Mary's. So you believe in an immaculate conception? No, because the immaculate conception refers to the conception of Mary in Catholicism. Uh, just Just a little, but what I believe in is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived without intercourse that the sperma, which is the word used, uh, conceived the flesh. So Jesus was man. He had all the propensities of man, and he was... In Mary's DNA? God in, in Mary's DNA and God's, God's spirit. Okay. okay? But he, was, he went through his uh, earthly life, and he was tempted. Scripture says God can't be tempted. Well, Jesus was tempted. Was he not God? He was God in him, but his flesh was not. His flesh was man. So he overcame for us what we could not do. And he did that on our behalf, full of God. But it was God. So I, I understand the, the game when, well, was God torturing himself and, and all that? It's not a game. Well, I know. But, it, but for some She's people, curious. It, it wasn't, I don't know how to explain it. I yeah, just, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, yeah. it's miraculous. Yeah, it's if miraculous. It, if it happens, it is a product of how faith. could we... But that's how I explain it. Now, just to let you know, the Trinitarians say Jesus was a little, well, not little, but they say Jesus was a spirit, Jesus, who came down and took on his flesh. And that is really not much different than polytheism. And I just don't embrace Trinitarianism as a result of that and many more things. So uh, back to it, Jesus did take on flesh and his flesh did not sin and his flesh was offered up as the Paschal lamb during Passover. His blood was shed, and, and his blood did not have uh, impurities, and that blood cleansed the world of sin, past, present, future. So we teach here, there is no such thing as sin. That's something people hate in church. There is no sin if he paid for it. How could sin exist if he paid for it? So there is no sin of the flesh. If you have sex with your neighbor's cat, that's not a sin. Okay. What is the sin? The sin is in failing to love because those were his commandments, failing to love. Was it unloving to have sex with your neighbor's cat? Yes, it was. 
your neighbor probably didn't want you to do that. And the cat the didn't cat. like it either. And the cat was like, nah. <laughs> so so uh, uh, it's love now that we are judged on. It is love now. It is not the sin it's taken care of. People don't understand that good news, John. They go to church and they hear about their sin. We'll talk about that would be something I hope you'll bring up when we talk about churches. All right. Yeah, so, so guilt and shame and sin. Let's do that now, and then we'll come back to Guilt, it. Guilt, shame, sin. What, what, you can, I have shame when I fail in my love. When I get mad at the guy who cut me off, right after it and happens. you flip him off with your cross. I flip him off. I'm a Christian. Right after it happens, my spirit says, Sean, that's not you. Uh, you, you follow me. I'm the Prince of Peace. You forgive. You turn the other cheek. You return evil with good, Sean. You don't do that. And so that is the, that thing. It's self-imposed by the spirit upon the individual. You don't need a pastor or preacher giving you objective religious beliefs and pointing at you and saying, you must repent of what? The sin's gone. You see, so I think that needs to be understood by people who are trying to pursue Christ, that he took care of sin. Just ask yourself, if he did it, when did he do it? 2,000 years ago. So is sin left? No, it's not. What's left? To love. If you fail in love, well, then think about that. And that's what you're talking about. We talked a bit about uh, homosexuality, I think, in the last, in your interview with me. Yeah. Uh, some would say that, that the Old Testament makes a few vague references, but they're often taken out of context. And then the New Testament makes very few references. And again, many say those are taken out of context. Yeah. What's your position? Uh, my, my position is everything from a biblical stance is pretty sinful. Everything. And that's why Jesus came. So to pick... Being heterosexual? Being heterosexual in, most, in the ways that humans practice heterosexuality, pretty much. Yeah, we're pretty lustful. We're pretty carnal. And so um, the, the Bible indicts almost every fleshly characteristic. That's its job. Why? Because it points to the Messiah. And it says, believe on him because you can't do it. You're screwed if you think that your righteousness is going to make you God happy with you. I sent my son to take care of you, for you. Look to him. Homosexual, heterosexual, whatever. Look to him. That's the whole point. Just look to him and relax. Relax. He did it. We don't get that message anymore. We get, no, it's sin. You got to repent. It says this. It says it right here. No, no, that's not the message. So everything's sinful, in a sense, except for love and looking to him, you're saying. Yeah, but we are, dead to, we are dead to anything being sinful. Paul says we're dead to the law. Okay, let me back up. If I put up a law, that makes you a sinner. If there's no posted law, there's no sin. If you have a school district and you drive through it and there's no posted speed, you can go 100 miles an hour. Okay, but if they put up a sign 25 miles and you go 26, you are convicted of sin. So what Paul says is the law is dead. Christians are dead to the law. If you get rid of the law, you've gotten rid of sin. You've gotten rid of it. It doesn't exist because there's no posted commandment against it, which is why when people use the Bible to convict homosexuals of sin, it's wrong because they're posting up a law to say you are sinful instead of saying, did you know that Jesus came and paid for all the infractions of the world? Come to the good news. Instead, we want to have the conversation is whether homosexuality is sinful or not. And that is not the conversation. It can't even be in our vernacular as Christians because we're dead to the law. We're dead to it. It doesn't exist. Nothing posted, no sin. 
What does it mean to be born again and saved for you now? <clears throat> Adam and Eve, God said, when you take of that fruit, you're going to die. That day were his words. Well, Adam lived to be 920 years old. So what happened? He died spiritually. Okay? He, he was a tripartite being. God manifests himself in heaven. He manifests himself through his son. He manifests himself to us in spirit. That's three in one. He was a tripartite being when he, God created him. He took his clay, he breathed into him pneuma, and he became a living suke, three in one in Adam. Well, when he took of that fruit in rebellion, he died spiritually. So then man, Adam and Eve, and all the progeny began to live life as bipartite beings, by their body and by their mind, will, and emotion. And that's how the human race lives, by their mind, will, and emotion. And I think I'll do this. I want to do this. I'll do it. And my body agrees. Jesus came and he said, listen, you got to be born again. That means you have to receive that spiritual segment in your person again that Adam had when he and Eve were created. When I was born again, that segment of the spirit that was lacking in me from being a member of the Mormon church that I never was able to get through rituals and rites came into me. And it gave me new vision and it gave me an ability to love, which I did not have before. I had, I was very, very, remember I told you I was the sinner. I was very selfish. I was egocentric. I've taken tests on, on narcissism as what I was like before. I've taken tests on uh, borderline personality things. And, I, and I'm right up there at the top cusp of a very disturbed person. So the gospel is best for the sinner because it gives us that new heart and it gives us that spiritual worldview that we could not get from our flesh. I, don't, I think everybody is failing. I think everyone needs to be born again. That's what scripture says. But for me, someone who's really messed up, it was night and day. I became a completely different man that, sitting here than I was in 1997 when it occurred. How much of that is changing behavior for you? It, uh, I have never allowed since that time for my behaviors to, uh, I've never lived by my behaviors. So along the road of being a Christian since 97, I have been in fist fights. I've gotten drunk. I've had some sexual interaction that shouldn't have been because I've never gone back to, I've got to do this in my flesh. That's what I did as a Mormon. What I have done, honest to God, is I've said, you've got to take it. You've got to handle this for me because I can't do it myself. And over time, that has happened to where today, I mean, those things haven't happened in, you know, maybe 10 years. But boy, when I first became a Christian, I wasn't much different in my flesh. It was still in operation. But as the spirit grows and overcame me, I became better equipped at managing that flesh by the spirit. And now uh, anyone who's known me, my family, my wife, anybody knows I am a much better man having Jesus in me than I was without, without him. When I was growing up in Texas, meeting with First Baptists, there was this idea of um, being saved where you do the altar call and you say, I'm, I'm saved, Jesus. And then, as, as I remember how they explained it to me, then it didn't matter what you did, you were going to heaven. Yeah. And so there was no sin after being saved in a sense. Yeah. But I don't know if that's right because I'm sure they would have said there's still sin. But doesn't make <sighs> sense, does it? It didn't make sense then. Still doesn't make sense. They still do it. There's no sin. You've been forgiven, but, but you're a sinner. I, it doesn't make any sense. Right. So the, the way that I've understood it to be, John, is that uh, you're forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. Those who understand what Jesus has done for them, they don't allow sin to reign. They allow the spirit to reign 
over the course of time. They are grateful that, that they realize what their sin was amounting to or what they called their sin, their fallen nature amounted to. They're grateful to God. And so they say, I'm going to choose to do well here. So Christians, the say, I've been saved and do whatever you want is really, really a misnomer because a true Christian does not do whatever they want. It's actually the opposite. They do, they do things they don't want to do. My flesh still wants to do everything my flesh wants to do. It still does. The flesh will always be bad, at least in my life. But with Christ in me, I choose out of love and respect and humility for what he's done for me to take my will and submit it to his. And his will says forgive. His will says love. His will says do what I did when I walked on the earth. That's what, born, that's what the regenerative thing means to me. So in theory, would it be possible for someone to have that born again experience, be saved, turn their life over to God or whatever, and then 15 years down the road, lose their job, wife leaves them, they get depressed and sad, and then they become a serial adulterer or a mass murderer. Can that happen to sure. someone who has been born again? Sure. It can happen. It does happen. I can see it happening to me. And that's one of the reasons why I'm in the Word and why I think the preaching of the Word and teaching of the Word contextually is so important to people is because if you stop feeding the Spirit, it gets weak. It, it, and you don't feed it through religious Even works. Even if you've been born again. Even if you've been born again. Absolutely. So that's one of the reasons why you would go to church is to be fed spiritually so that when you leave, you have less of a propensity to do those things. Now, let's say you walk out of the church, you have a bad day, and you kill somebody. Let's be extreme. Well, that would break you as a real Christian who has, who's been born again. You would be overwrought with having done it. You'd confess it. You'd take your punishment. And you would, you would do all you could while in prison to serve other people because you really slipped up in your flesh. But you wouldn't say, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. You know, it just doesn't work that way. It would almost be like a second anointing, like the Mormon version of second anointing, mm. you know, where it's like, oh, I'm good. Right. Yeah, I don't like good that. luck with that. I don't like that. Well, you know what? Uh, in truth, you know, the New Testament, uh, it talks about the rebirth experience in four places, maybe. But it talks about bearing fruit and producing fruits of love 90% uh, of the time. So those guys who preach once saved, always saved, uh, you know, I'm really skeptical of that because I think it really does send the wrong message. Okay. All right. Um, I interviewed Bart Ehrman recently, yeah. and he was really brilliant. He talks about, from his view, um, how, the, from his view, a, a human named Jesus or whatever, um, you know, became perceived to be the Son of God, how, uh, how just his teachings, among other people's teachings, sort of were privileged to the point where they... Uh, started to really catch on how the legends and, and oral traditions around Jesus got passed down until the point where people started writing him down, how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write the, the New Testament. People wrote down the oral traditions that they heard over many generations, and that's how we got the Gospels. And then from his perspective, how the Bible, the New Testament has a lot of contradictions. In his mind, some very problematic contradictions. Then about how the Bible was changed over time. And, and even the Mormon 
perspective corrupted over time and you know and then how christianity grew into this global superpower when it was really just a small band of, of followers of jesus what are your views on all all of that perspective of bart ehrman's you know is does he have it right does he have it wrong where does he have it right where does he have it wrong I asked you a question when I interviewed you, and you said, uh, do you have 10 hours? <laughs> okay, so uh, that's a 10-hour question to me. But let me say this. I appreciate Bart Ehrman. I think he brings out points that should be uh, definitely taken into the discussion of Christianity. I think that he knows his stuff. I think he studied under Metzger, and, and who's a brilliant uh, scholar. But in misquoting Jesus, Ehrman says, what I say is not really that much different than the teachings that Metzger gave me so while he's a believer yeah, is a believer. Yeah. Okay. so while he does bring up points of great criticism and and it gets the zealot christians yo i think he is doing a service and i think anytime the truth and light can be brought forward i don't care what it is if it is that the myth of jesus grew to where he became god in the flesh let's see it that's fine with me having said that um i agree with him that the bible is uh uh, not maybe what we have let it become. And let me explain that. When Jesus was there, he had his apostles. He said, go out and preach. He never said, go out and write. Okay. And so then they go out and preach and they're killed off one by one. And we get to around 70, 70 AD. And I think John was the last one then that would be debated. And the last book is written revelation. And then we have a, we have manuscripts, all over that ancient world that are not available to everybody else. We have 250 years minimum, 250 years before those manuscripts are ab actually collected. So what governed the church from the last apostle for the first 250 years? It's the Holy Spirit, okay? So then we come to uh, Constantine, we come to the gathering and the approving of this book and that book. And we have books that are excluded, and we have that. And then it comes out to the 1500s, and we have Erasmus. He gives us a, a version of the Bible. And then we, we have the Protestant Reformation. And what do they say? They say sola scriptura. You know what that means? It means scripture alone. And so what that did was it took a faith that began for the first 250 years with nothing written except the Old Testament. And it was all word of mouth, and it was the Spirit. And they said, now we have a manual to make this a legal thing. And you know what it did? It caused the church to go like this, in 10 million different directions with interpretation. So I think the use of the Bible is egregiously misused in the, in the faith today. I think it should be taught the best to our ability. People should have the right to understand it the way they do by the Spirit. If someone's a Bart Ehrman fan, they should say, you know, in this passage right here, Ehrman points out, and you say, wow, add that to your list, you guys. That's what's come out. That's some truth we need to incorporate. Let's see what it really means. But instead, you don't get that. You get an us versus them division based on the Bible being this God that they worship, when in fact, it's a map. It's a spiritual map for people to read and get gleaned from the, for themselves the things that are beneficial to them in their life. They're responsible to God for what they glean. And so I welcome uh, higher criticism from men like Bart Ehrman. And I welcome their uh, pointing things out that we should know. There are passages in there. Um, they don't substantially change uh, things, but they certainly endorse, like the Trinity, there's passages in there that absolutely endorse the Trinity that appear to have completely been inserted.
But it doesn't mean the whole thing is wrong. There's a lot in there that's good. So I think Ehrman has a role. I think it's beneficial. I think his writings should be included. And let's talk about them. So you're not an inerrancy, Bible inerrancy kind of guy. No, the, and really, really the scholars, all they say is what that means is when Isaiah heard the words and wrote it, that those were inerrant. But when the copyist came, not inerrant. That is really the, the biblical way to understand biblical inerrancy. So for you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't necessarily write Matthew, Mark, Don't Luke, know. and John. I know Q, and I know all the stuff that goes with it. Here's what I know, and I'm going to go to one last thing about when you're talking about, do I know if Matthew did it and all that? Here's what I know. There was a blind man, and he was born blind, and his, he, Jesus healed him according to the scripture. And uh, his parents were brought in before the Sanhedrin, and Sanhedrin, and they said, you know, tell us about him. They said, he, he's old enough, tell him himself. And they start questioning him, and it's going back and forth, and he's, the blind man who can now see is getting a little annoyed with these religious leaders. And he says, let me just tell you this. This is all I can say. I was blind, and now I see. That's what he said. That's what I say to all the scrutiny about everything else. You can say, well, you're just under a spell. You can say it's been a crutch for you. Have at it. I've needed a crutch. But I was blind, John, and now I see. I see the need for love for other people. I see the need for selflessness, which I did not have. So where Ehrman's right, I rejoice in truth. Where the Bible is off, let's get rid of it. But I was blind and now I see. And that's all I can say. Now a Mormon can say that too. And I, I, re, I say, fine, brother. If that is great. If that works for you, fine. And that's where I've changed a lot from the show till today. And then when the Bible says that women should stay silent in the church. Bullshit. I, Sorry. Doesn't say that or yeah. you don't believe it? Oh, no, it says that. Right. And here's the other thing why eschatology is so important. Paul was trying to keep a church that was under such pressure together. The women didn't have rights. And he was just like, look. You know, and he even said, look, it's better that you don't even get married. Be like me. Don't now, would that be for the whole world forever and ever? No. It was for that time because the end was coming. So it's better to be that. This time, I don't want you to talk in church. It's better. Than that was a cultural thing, and that's how you have to read it. But the Bible was materially fulfilled for them. It does not have material application since then on. And that's what men have done. They've said, let's take the material things. Let's have deacons and elders boards. Let's have churches. Let's send missionaries. Let's do all this. That had n There's not a scripture in the New Testament, not one that says, and these things shall go to every church till the end of the uh, age. None says it applies to us. All of it is contextually written to them at that time for that end that was coming to them hastily. Why did the scripture have to stop? Why didn't God keep inspiring prophets with ongoing, continuing revelation? Well, I mean, my answer to that is at the end of that age was the end of material religion. And God now writes his laws upon the hearts and minds of individuals, whether they go to a church, whether they've said Jesus' name, a Muslim can have it, Buddhists can, Buddhists can have it. He writes his laws on their hearts and minds. There's no need for a prophet if God is writing on your heart. There's no need for apostles. There's no need for church organization. There's no need for going to church on Sunday. There's no need for any rules. There's no need for any of that. There's the need for his seekers to have his spirit written on their hearts and on their minds, and they self-govern. They are, there is no intermediary between them and God at all, period. That's what Jesus came to bring, 
freedom, liberty to set the captives free. Yeah. If, uh, um, if a Hindu out there or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or someone who just doesn't know, a post-Mormon who's just burned, if they're doing their best to live a life of love, if they're doing their best to be kind, to, to be honest, and to serve people, what is their state in the afterlife relative to a born-again Christian? I, uh, well, first of all, a born-again Christian, just the term doesn't mean jack. Well, we, but what is it? What, what is the, the state you want people, you're striving to get people to arrive at? Yeah. A follower of Christ would probably be better. If, if you're talking, comparing, I would say a follower of Jesus. Because you look at his life, you follow what he did. So a born-again Christian really is loaded with a language that's very unfortunate. So I, but if you're comparing an atheist, uh, someone who's lost to Buddhism, as we would say it, someone who's uh, lost to metaphysics that aren't true, um, that aren't Jesus, but they are seeking God and they're seeking to love and all this, who, they can be better than I am. What if they don't call it seeking God? What if they're just like, I, I walk in nature, I meditate, I serve my fellow man, I try and be as loving as possible. Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what it says. And it, then it says in another place, no one can confess that Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit. So what that says to me is everyone will know and everyone will acquiesce to him being, that's why I'm not a universalist. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus leads to God. But people who are following what, what they know, the best that they know, they're okay. Paul covers that in Romans 1. You know, they look to the skies. They say there's something bigger than me. That's what I know. God is graceful. God is good. He's not looking for reasons to keep people out. He's looking for reasons to bring people in. When we have a blanket saving of Jesus for all people, all sin, atheist, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, we have something very different here. That, that's the good news. When they die, God will judge their heart. And they'll say, you know, I, I saw in your heart while you were doing all those good things, you were really a rat bastard behind the scenes. And if he says, I saw in your heart while you walked in nature and just sought for me and didn't know Jesus and didn't know this, I love you, you're my son. So that's what it's based on, you know, the heart, love. So does everybody return to God? Everyone returns to God. But then you talked about like inside the wall of the city and outside of the wall of the city. It's all heaven, but it's not in the same proximity to him. Why would God force people who don't want anything to do with him here or there live in his presence? So those outside the walls of the city of heaven will confess that God is God and Jesus is sure. Jesus, but they'll just be on the outside? Sure, because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They die and they'll say, I can't help but. And if at some tacos. point they, yeah, tacos. <laughs> we just tacos. heard them crunching. Um, and if at some point someone on the outer of the walls in the afterlife says, hey, I want to, Okay, I get it now. I want to move closer to God. Can, God is merciful endlessly. He, he, his love is endless. He tells us to love endlessly. I would say his love is endlessly. And I would say that whatever someone is going to do, he is going to bring them into what they want. So no permanent state of... No idea. So when you ask me, do you know what happens afterward? I have no idea. All I know is what it says about here. What happens there? But we do know God is love. If he's love, boy... You can bank a lot of good things will be happening because of that. All right. Two things are very important. Actually, three. One is that it's been really fun to talk with Sean for the second hour. 
The second is that tacos are here. The third thing is that uh, we've reached an hour. And I'm going to add a fourth thing, which is we're not done. So we're going to go eat some tacos. And then we're going to come back and do a final hour uh, with Sean McCraney. We're going to talk about some of these other churches that he's been critical of. I'm going to push back a little bit. We're going to talk about where we are in the world today with his ministry, with Mormonism, with everything. And we'll figure out what else we ask Sean uh, to spend a final hour with him. So thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with Sean McCraney. Of this round of interviews with Sean McCraney. Of course, there's the previous rounds of our interviews with Sean McCraney. But uh, don't go away. Please join us again immediately for our final hour with Sean McCraney. Thanks, Sean. Thank Give you, brother. Knuckle. Knuckles. Right. Don't go away. Come right back. Taco time. <laughs>